Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. I am Ferenc Lotso, and it is my pleasure to host Emily J. Levine today. Welcome to the show, Emily, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ferenc. It's a distinct pleasure to be here and be part of this discussion. Emily Levine is an Associate Professor of Education and by courtesy of History at Stanford. She received her PhD in History and the Humanities from the same university, and in previous years, she was a student and then also a postdoctoral fellow at Yale. Before returning to Stanford, she was Associate Professor of European History at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where she also chaired the Triangle Intellectual History Seminar. She's the author of a previous book titled Dreamland of Humanists, Warburg, Kassirer, Panofsky, and the Hamburg School from 2013. She has also published in top scholarly journals and a host of major outlets, such as the Chronicle of Higher Education or the New York Times. Her newest book is Allies and Rivals, German-American Exchange and the Rise of the Modern Research University. This book was published by the University of Chicago Press just a couple of months ago. Now, this fascinating new book of yours, Emily, it discusses the institutionalization process of the modern university ideal, and it discusses it as a compromise that you call the academic social contract. You refer to the university as a space of negotiated autonomy. So let us perhaps begin our conversation by talking about these uh, points uh, in turn. Uh, you write in the book that the essence of the contract between the university and its partners remained largely the same, namely that scholars receive relative autonomy in exchange for services to society and the state. However, the balance could shift so much towards service to society and the state that the benefits scholars could receive in turn were at times rather difficult to recognize. Now, again, an exciting part of this book is also its focus on what you call the un-university. Mm. You zoom in on the stories of extra-university institutions, such as research institutes, experiments in adult education, or the somewhat special case of liberal arts colleges that have all been developed in the wake of various critiques of modern universities. So could I ask you, first of all, to explain what you mean by the academic social contract mm -hmm. and in what ways has this contract been renegotiated in the 19th and 20th centuries? And what can this additional focus on un-universities reveal to us about this process of renegotiation? First of all, thank you for your careful reading and for this terrific first question. So as, as you say, Allies and Rivals tells the story of the university as a history of compromises iterated over time by cultural brokers in which they reconcile aspects of the university ideal with broader social needs and political stakeholders. And this begins in my story with the University of Berlin, which was established in 1810 as an institution with the dual tasks of both knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination. That is what we call today research and teaching. And in a series of letters and documents, the German linguist, diplomat, and scholar Wilhelm von Humboldt lays out the relationship of this new institution to society in which scholars receive autonomy to pursue research in exchange for providing services to that society, sometimes understood as 
teaching. And, and another era is understood as, as other services. And it's this exchange that I identify as the academic social contract. And my telling, it marks the beginning of the modern research university. And it becomes an essential building block for the modern nation state. And a pattern emerges over the course of the book. Academic entrepreneurs contract with their communities and polities, exchanging service to society in return for institutional autonomy. And these contracts evolve over time on both sides of the Atlantic as the needs of societies change and as the aspirations of academic leaders grow. So once one academic social contract is exhausted, academic entrepreneurs find new partners, formulate new ideas, and establish new institutions sometimes even outside the university, which leads me to your excellent point about the un-university, which is an integral part of my story of the university and I think distinguishes it perhaps from other studies. What's interesting is that from the moment it was founded in Germany and iterated upon in America, there were contradictory cries that the university that combined research and teaching was self-evident and totally inefficient, a pa paradox that persists to this day. And what we see over time is cycles of discontent in which new institutions are founded that aim to address that inefficiency by devoting itself exclusively to one task or the other, so teaching or research. So for example, with World War I underway and the interest in German models of research waning, a window opens for academic innovators in America who want to devote more attention to teaching and one-on-one -on -one instruction that they felt has been overshadowed by the overemphasis on specialization. And in the 1920s, the liberal arts college experiences a revival of sorts, influenced by philosophers like John Dewey and looking to other influence like Plato and um, Cambridge and Oxbridge and the Oxford model. They focus on new institutions um, they create in this era, like Bennington and Sarah Lawrence College and Black Mountain College, about which I write. The, their position is if we can't provide high quality teaching at the same time that we do research, that is if we can't disseminate knowledge while we advance knowledge, we have to remove one of these activities to a different location. At the same time, other education reformers like Abraham Flexner ridicule um, the debasement of the American university that has reduced it to a, what he calls a department store of knowledge, right? They want nothing to do with undergraduates. <laughs> and they begin to found, um, he begins the process of founding the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, which will open in 1933. And he aspires to create an institution for top scholars in their field, who without the distraction of teaching will now ensure the American preeminence in research. And here he has in mind a kind of Max Planck Institute in America. But what's interesting for us is that despite these additions to the system, the model of the research university that combines both the research and the te teaching tasks um, has remained and continues to remain the gold standard. And the inefficiency of that system you know, has had huge implications, in particular for the undervalued and unsupported side of the house uh, that is teaching. Great. I think that's a fantastic uh, introduction, so to say, to our conversation. And next, I also wanted to talk a bit about your approach uh, in, in more detail, because one of the most interesting things for me is that you explore the origins of the research university through historical research that you have done, but also via sociological frameworks of interpretation. 
you claim that the purpose of the university from the beginning was both utilitarian and <laughs> symbolic, practical and idealistic. And you insist that political and intellectual historians could benefit from attending to organizational form, right? So allies and rivals offers a rich and fascinating long durée history of the university's relations mm. to external interests, not least to show how the modern university was enabled by nationalization and globalization, while it also preserved an internal raison d'être that continues to diverge from the self-interested politics of nations and also the logic of markets, right? So how would you characterize your approach in say general terms and how does it differ from some of the previous approaches to the modern university? And once again, why do you place such an emphasis on, such emphasis on the sociological and on questions of organizational form, what, what new insights do these uh, emphases yield? Yeah, great question. Well, most studies of the university have taken either an internal perspective, focusing on the university ideal, or an institutional perspective oriented towards questions around organizational and sociological issues. And so Allies and Rivals aims to bridge this internalist and externalist divide which is also a divide between the history of education and intellectual and political history. Um, and so my book is archivally driven, as you say, it's interdisciplinary, um, it's transatlantic, which I know hope we'll talk about in a bit, and, and it aims to be resonant. It's based on eight years of archival research and over two dozen archives in Germany and America. And the main challenge as I see it to writing a history of the university that is true to its features is that the university is part of the world of ideas, but it's also part of the world of hard compromises. And I make this hurdle or this challenge also essential to my methodological approach that aims to understand the university, not exclusively as a history of, of an ideal, but as we were just talking about a history of compromises in a quasi dialectical evolution in which those compromises are iterating and in institutionalizing ideals over time. And that requires that I employ a mixed methodology drawing on the sociology of knowledge as much as I employ history. And I think why this is important or necessary, we can illustrate with an example. Because internal histories of the university simply don't explain everything. In particular, they can't explain entirely the successes and the failures of individual systems. And this becomes clear with the wildly different successes of the French and German systems um, in, that I describe in chapter one. As I argue, their innovations at the end of the 19th century in some ways are not all that different. They both pursue research and teaching. They both integrate technical skills into education. They both envision elite roles for a university trained professional class. To be sure, the Germans would play up their rejection of the French, but their similarities suggest that the external political context is as important as any internal logic in explaining what by the 20th century would be called the French so-called decline. Um, so what we see when mapping the sociology of knowledge onto an international political context are those competitive dynamics through which universities as institutions of higher learning evolve. Namely, that decentralized systems like Germany and America 
which had robust debates about where knowledge and power should be organized and strong regional centers turned out to be critical conditions for the possibility of success. Um, at the same time, nations with centralized systems like France or a bipolar system, as we might describe Great Britain, lacked the, comp the competitive um, energy that results from the strong center periphery dynamics. And, and this turns out to be crucial for the advancement of knowledge. Great, great. That That's, again, fascinating insight. And you mentioned early on uh, during your answer that you indeed offer a transatlantic interpretation mm -hmm. which focuses on Germany and the United States. And I would like us to discuss that a bit more as well. So how have Germany and the US interacted when it comes to the modern university? And in what sense were there indeed allies and rivals, as you of course mentioned in your, or as, as you put also into, into your title? Very exactly have the systems of their higher educations come to, to differ? And what provided the foundation for the US to solidify its lead in the global knowledge economy in the 20th century. And we could perhaps also address in what ways have these US universities preserved elements of their German models, which actually might have gotten lost uh, in Germany itself uh, in the meantime. On a basic level, Germans and Americans were allies in the social sciences and rivals in politics. But on a more nuanced level, I also show how that system that governed the relationship among universities was a value system separate and apart, as you were saying, from the politics of nations and the movements of markets. So through the lens of higher education, the book tells the story of the ascent of Germany and America and their ambitions for world power at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. But it also contains more universal lessons about how ideas spread and where innovation comes from. Namely, as I argue, through the open exchange of ideas and competitive emulation, even or perhaps especially with institutional rivals. So sometimes when historians speak of the relationship between Germany and America, they refer to the so-called import of the German university or the influence of Germany. But I would argue universities are not commodities that are imported. And influence suggests a unilateralism that is not correct. In my analysis, it is the bi-directional transatlantic exchange that spins the motor of intellectual, institutional, and political history. And here I'm drawing on the tradition of Histoire-Crasse and Transatlantische Geschichte of entanglement among scholars as a model for describing how academic entrepreneurs on both sides of the Atlantic visit one another's institutions. They exchange ideas about how to organize ideas and then they make decisions about what innovations to adapt and integrate, inevitably with different results. And in the story, the convergences are as interesting as the divergences. So you asked about um, where they might part ways. And in chapter six of the book, I tell the story of what we might call competitive differentiation, how the Germans and Americans make different decisions, producing new institutional hybridizations to address that in, in, inefficiency we were talking about earlier, in particular, the awareness that research has outgrown the university. And both the Germans and Americans around 1900 saw the benefit of using private money to infuse the system with new resources, 
space, and laboratories to support the growing needs of research. In 1910, the Germans found the Kaiser Wilhelm Society outside the university. So again, a quintessential example of the extra university which spawns the institutes that become known as the Max Planck Institutes, while the Americans, through the benefaction of Carnegie, found the Carnegie Institution of, of Washington, D.C. Um, in 1902. So in Germany, the solution to this problem is effectively to remove research from the university to an extra university space, giving directors of the institute more resources and space to pursue what we would call today interdisciplinary research, a decision that unleashes anxiety that they would turn the universities into second-rate um, institutions focused exclusively on teaching. In America, in contrast, Carnegie rejects a campaign to found a new federal university and instead creates a separate grant-giving institution to support rather than to compete with existing universities. Now, the jury, I think, is still out on whether these extra university systems in, that have sort of expanded around Europe are more or less productive than the bundle of the modern research university. And it's an interesting question that I'm exploring elsewhere. But with respect to the organization, organization of knowledge that we've spoken about, research and teaching, one could say that America actually retains a more pure version of the German university, um, where within less than three decades of its founding there, it becomes an ingrained institution that seems to have taken on a life of its own and is difficult, near impossible to reverse. Great, great. I also wanted us to talk a bit about questions of freedom and questions of university mm -hmm. autonomy. These are certainly questions that have been on the minds of many uh, CU uh, faculty members mm -hmm. uh, in recent years for all the wrong reasons, uh, if you wish. And I think you tell a very intriguing story uh, about these concepts and, and the practices that are associated with uh, them. You show in the book that the formalization of academic freedom occurred despite, or perhaps we should say because of, the state's demands that actually most threatened it, right? Uh, the First World War acted as a fertilizer of sorts uh, in this regard, as, as you show in the book. Now, however, the, the contracted autonomous space academics possessed would expand and then contract again as the result of a kind of pendulum swing, if you wish, at least that's how I have read uh, what, what, what you argue uh, in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to assert in this context, for example, that even the Nazification uh, of the German universities after 1933 rather highlights the malleability of this pre-existing relationship rather than representing a kind of true rupture as political mm -hmm. historians would, for instance, be, be quite likely to, to maintain, right? Mm -hmm. So you also claim that throughout this process of oscillation, academics would often, in fact, willingly collaborate with state authorities, or they might also reach back to what you label at some point the nostalgic myth of an autonomous university, mm -hmm. right? This could be used as a source of their own authority and as a basis to renegotiate uh, the academic social contract in their own favor, obviously, right? So, so again, moreover, you also claim that that the gaps between freedom on campus, uh, if it was, if if they managed to to assert it, uh, and in broader society, would later actually blunt the long-term ability of professors to engage in public debates and to guard uh, against uh, pseudosciences uh, that way. So may mm -hmm. I uh, therefore ask, what has your research really reveal about 
the history of university autonomy and academic freedom more generally? And in what exact ways have these lofty ideals been institutionalized or undermined uh, in modern times and with what uh, consequences? Thank you. That's a really tough question. And as you say, one that's pressing today. I, let me give one example from the book of how academic freedom gets institutionalized in an academic, in a transatlantic context and the consequences of that adaptation or misadaptation, maladaptation. And then one example of the way that that freedom is undermined that might be surprising to listeners, as you say. So first, I think we take this notion of academic freedom to be self-evident. Um, it's something we, we get as scholars, right? It's our right. But is it, it is an example of an idea that's fashioned in particular in America as an adaptation of a German concept iterated under particular circumstances. As you say, namely when that freedom was threatened during World War I, when the government was putting increasing pressure on what could and couldn't be said. So in America, a group of scholars found the American Association of University Professors or the AAUP in 1915. And although more than half of the signatories of their founding document, the Declaration of Principles of Academic Freedom and Academic Tenure um, had studied in Germany, they exaggerate the freedoms that academics experience there. And the American version distorts the German concept um, in crucial ways. Uh, which had viewed academic freedom as part of an academic social contract, as we've been talking about. The German model recognized that the university occupied a negotiated space between two worlds, the ideals of pure inquiry and the economic and political pressure outside its walls. In America, academic freedom didn't require fealty to a political order as it had in Germany, which was, we could say, a good thing, but it also ignored the fact that in Germany, academic freedom worked and indeed was needed because there was more freedom inside the university than in the wider political culture. And one need only recall the philosopher Immanuel Kant's you know, famous phrase, argue as much as you please, but obey, which compromises that, um, <laughs> that captures that compromise succinctly. So the American version had one goal to permit tenured faculty to express controversial views without fear of dismissal. And they were successful in creating a vision for academic freedom as a, as a freedom from rather than a freedom to. So defined as a negative rather than a positive liberty to use Isaiah Berlin's term. And I think this has mistakenly elided academic freedom with civil liberties in the US and it's decoupled academic freedom from the original social contract, freeing academics from any responsibility to society or citizenship. Bordeaux says autonomy always has to be negotiated again and again. And I refer to that in the book. And I think we're witnessing a moment in which that autonomy is currently being renegotiated. And this is not to diminish the many challenges that we face structurally in the university. Those in America pale in comparison to the ones that you are have experienced at um, CEU. But I would like to see academics in America talking about not just we are what we are owed, but, but also what, what we owe society in that renegotiation. I think this is, this is a hard moment to discuss, but maybe it's also the more relevant and problematic one. One of the revealing moments when academic freedom is undermined in the story that I tell, as you mentioned, is during the Nazi era. But it's not exactly the way that our listeners might think. To be sure, academic freedom is undermined when Hitler co-opts the universities 
and exiles Jewish socialist and non-Aryan scholars. Um, but it's also undermined, I would argue, by the international communities largely condoning this move. So one of the most provocative conclusions in the book uh, that's based on archival evidence and builds on the work that Stephen Remy did in Heidelberg Myth is that even during the Nazi era, as I described in the penultimate chapter, Hitler and his leadership understood that if he wanted German universities to remain preeminent, they require foreign validation, that he cared what foreigners thought. And this was an opportunity for American scholars to speak out about, um, you know, when they were invited in particular to the 550th anniversary of the University of Heidelberg, um, as I account in that chapter. And they largely attend, offering their support with the only currency that they have available to them, which is mutual validation. So another way to say this is that even under Hitler, the university required foreign validation for the preeminence of its universities. Um, and the universities in Heidelberg and Göttingen had long and distinguished histories of academic freedom and international exchange. They hosted the most active American colonies, but too few American leaders drew on the university's global ties to counter insidious nationalism um, and the new constraints on academic freedom. Um, and I think the university sort of as ideal type and the viability of the academic social contract suffered as a result. Great. Again, that's a very rich and nuanced answer. And I think the entire book presents really quite complex and really nuanced argument. And it, there's another layer to it, which I really wanted us uh, to talk about, because in the last two chapters of the book, you, you marry uh, your earlier themes of autonomy and power, uh, also with questions of stratification and exclusion. And these are certainly questions that are also much debated uh, today. You know, you seem to argue that U.S. institutions married elitism with an appearance of equality of access through the idea of meritocracy, right? That's kind of the main uh, notion that is used uh, in, in, this, in this respect. And at one point you state, and I'm quoting, that the ethnic, racial, and social expectations of scholars and students, which were inherited from the Germans, had their hierarchical origins obscured by this ideology of meritocracy, right? So since there has been so much discussion around this concept in recent years and recent months, could I perhaps ask you how you view this idea of meritocracy and its impact on the US system of higher education? And how has university autonomy and power interacted with the reinforcement of stratification and of exclusion over time? There is a false assumption in the history of the university that the university ideal is pure and good and all ill comes from the corruption on the outside. And that's just not the case in the story that you mentioned. And I think in researching the history of standardization and professionalization, one thing becomes clear that the friction from two very different value systems, the meritocratic and the democratic, is the result from the tensions within the university and not the result of anything done to it. Um, and I think there's one story that I tell in the book that illustrates well the tension between excellence and ac access that results from those improvements in standardization or the raising of standards that are still very much with us today. And it's the story of the Flexner Report published in 1910 by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. It was commissioned by Carnegie and Pritchett 
and inspired by gains that ger the Germans had made in the professionalization of medicine. And it was produced after a year of research in the US and Canada, and it was an expose replete with embarrassing details about the subpar conditions for profit school, medical schools that had saturated the market of medical education at the time. And the Flexner report recommended um, introducing entrance requirements, a four-year graded curriculum, an integrated preclinical training, essentially the high quality program that exists today. And those institutions that couldn't meet those standards after 1910 were effectively regulated out of existence. And one advantage of this very activist, almost Darwinian-like strategy is that by 1915, the number of for-profit schools had dropped significantly. And we can all agree that's probably a good thing. But, but on the other hand, since mo most Black medical colleges were unable to fund the changes that Flexner demanded, they too couldn't make it. So this unleashed um, criticism, rightly so, of the undemocratic consequences of these high standards. Um, and the, the Flexner report had produced results, excellent research, schools, medicine that were sought after, and, and, and therefore, despite these undemocratic or unegalitarian consequences, they would provide a model that other fields would follow. So I think one lesson that we learned from looking at this history of meritocracy and a transatlantic context is that in taking the German model and wedging it into an American democracy, Americans like Flexner emphasized the pursuit of excellence over any systematic attention to democratization. And a second lesson is that when you look at America side by side Germany, we see that with respect to prioritizing excellence in education, over the goals of say, Democrat, the democratic uplift of American society, America also created a tiered system, um, perhaps much like the German one, but one that is more opaque to the outside eye. And because we leave the door open to social mobility just a crack for individuals who can climb up that ladder, we don't call out that hierarchy and we also don't offer clear pathwise, pathways for those on a more vocational, uh, path. Um, um, for the most part, we claim that the American system is different from the German one or from the European one in providing opportunity for all. And therefore, I think risk not providing good alternatives uh, from education to career based on democratic rather than meritocratic values. Now, Allies and Rivals is really a major a book. It's, as we discussed, it's based on historical research, it's based on sociological frames of interpretation. It's a transatlantic history. It's a history of the modern university, which also talks about its alternatives and, and draws them into the story in a very substantial way. So again, this is really, I think, a major accomplishment. And as a final question, therefore, I also wanted to ask you about something which historians uh, tend to be uh, less eager to talk about, but I think it's very important to do so in the current situation, to talk also a bit about prospects. Again, you, you do state in the book that university autonomy uh, and responsibility are to be valued equally but that universities in some sense need to operate under some downright contradictory pressures, right? You argue uh, in the conclusion, for instance, that the contractual framework that we have inherited uh, that you know, prevailed uh, during the 
Cold War era and that still prevails today uh, may not be so satisfactory anymore because the universe, universities have been strapped uh, of the earlier benefits. They no longer enjoy the benefits that went along uh, with that framework, right? So I was wondering whether we could talk a bit about how this transatlantic study also of past academic innovations it could be useful to the current reform process at universities. Would you perhaps be willing to share some of your impressions and also some of your expectations uh, regarding what uh, academic entrepreneurs uh, might do in terms of finding new partners, maybe formulating new ideas, also maybe establishing some new institutions that are perhaps more conducive uh, to academic life and academic exchange in the 21st century. Uh, in other words, you know, I want to ask really quite a monumental <laughs> question, if you wish, in closing, you know, where are we currently heading uh, as modern you know, universities? Uh, what innovations might be on the horizon? Uh, what kind of transformative change could we uh, perhaps uh, expect also in the shape of new on universities. Again, I realize you're a historian and these are again questions about the future, but since, you know, again, you you you, you display so much erudition and, and so much evidence in the book that I really wanted to, so to say, probe uh, your, your, your vision about these questions. And maybe last but not least, would you perhaps say uh, that the US is likely to, to continue uh, its, its kind of global academic leadership in the current century? Or would you maybe rather expect another a major shift uh, in geographic and national terms at this time, uh, perhaps uh, to the Far East? Yes, it is an momentous question, as you suggest, and historians are characteristically not great at predicting the future, as you also say. But here are two historically rooted ways, I think, about thinking about your question. First, with respect to institutional innovation, which is one of the central themes of the book. Um, in the most volatile 30-year period that I write about, the main source of institutional reform was to create hybrids, usually blending a previously existing institution with another one, one that usually presented a challenge or a threatening idea. So this is clearest in the form of the modern American research university, uh, which itself combines the general education of the English college with the specialized education of the German research university. And it combines the degrees giving the, the BA degree that had been associated with the English college with the PhD given by the German research universities. So just as the BA PhD research teaching combination was a hybrid that resulted from that period and turned out to be wildly successful, um, I'd like to see new hybrids coming out of our current moment of change. Uh, one might think about online and residential hybrids, high school and college hybrids, workforce and learning models that might reinvigorate our landscape and address some of those gaps that I was just talking about in the friction between meritocracy and de de democracy. Um, and I think the other thing to point out is that one of the lessons of the story is that there is no one good model. The US system has always benefited from robust diversity and heterogeneity. And so if we can maintain that diversity and resist uniformity or what sociologists call institutional isomorphism, you know, every university has to look like Stanford, um, we are bound to see new models come out of this particularly um, pressed moment. Many will probably fail, 
but some will succeed, like the Johns Hopkins University, which was the first um, combination of research and teaching um, and could change the landscape forever. Um, so second, I'll answer your question about the international or global element of the future, because that involves a different set of dynamics. Um, and I think here, the main lesson of the story that I would hope readers and listeners would take away is that the universities have long stood at the crossings of nations and the wider world. And even as they served the nation, they promoted the exchange of ideas and the free movement of scholars and students. And I think that we would agree, I don't have to persuade you that the flow of academic ideas and people is now at risk. Um, and, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that the German-American exchange of the 19th and 20th century should help us parse, for example, the Sino-American competition today to name one that in our country we're particularly preoccupied with. Under our last administration, under the Trump administration, two bills, for example, were introduced that reduced the number of Chinese, that would reduce the number of Chinese graduate students, researchers, and money coming to America. Um, university leaders insisted at the time that academic borders remain open, but the nationalist rhetoric and protectionism now has traction, I think, among both parties. And what Americans rarely acknowledge is that the Chinese in particular are following a path much like the Americans uh, pursued. Um, in the 19th century, nearly 10,000 Americans traveled to study in universities in Germany and exchange research advances and innovations accelerating science and technology on both sides of the Atlantic. China regularly sends 350,000 students to American universities, except due to the challenges now in getting foreign visas and the political climate, far fewer international students are coming to study in the US this year. And at the same time, American leadership is being expelled from branch campuses abroad, including most recently Yale and US College, NYU Shanghai, being you know, and it's being shuttered entirely, as in the case of Bard College in St. Petersburg. Um, and of course, I don't have to tell you about CEU operations moving to Vienna and all of the moves and ominous implications, I think, for education and democracy associated with um, that those, those um, threats. So I think stepping back, it's, perhaps it's worth saying that we live in a moment of dwindling global institutions and a closing of borders, even at universities. And we might consider, I would hope leaders would consider the ways that they can invoke the special mandate of globalism um, that universities have to support our shared humanity and counter resurgent nationalism and other illiberal threats. Thank you so much. That's certainly a rich and fascinating answer. And it comes to show that it does make sense to draw on historical expertise also when discussing the present moment and, and the future horizons. Thank you so much for the entire conversation, for taking on uh, these questions and addressing them so thoroughly and so substantially. I have personally learned uh, a lot from reading the book uh, and also from talking to you today. So thank you so much, Emily, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to discuss these rich topics with you and be part of this important conversation. Uh, we have been discussing Emily Levine's Allies and Rivals, a German Academic Exchange and the Rise of the Modern Research University today. This is an outstanding monograph on the modern university, which I can highly recommend. I hope you have enjoyed uh, our conversation about it. Until the next time.